get started this morning, and glad to see you, be here with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Largent is out at Brad Rice's church this morning. They're having a special service out there, and so I'm sure they're enjoying their time together. Uh, we're going to go for Sunday school to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you would uh, turn there, we'll be looking at a passage here in the morning service. I plan to look at verses 9 to 12 of this chapter, and so we're going to look at the passage just prior to that in Sunday school, uh, which is, starts in verse 4 and goes down to verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, the first three verses I'll go ahead and read to kind of get us uh, up to speed here of where Peter is. Uh, he starts in verse 1, 1 Peter 2, 1, and says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, hypocrisy and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Uh, verse 1 there, telling us what to lay aside as God's people, things that the Lord wants us to uh, avoid and set aside. Uh, verse 2, describing how we should love God's word, just like a newborn baby desires milk, and uh, that God's word also is uh, able to help us grow. And then verse 3, uh, describing that once you've experienced God's goodness in your life, you, you want more of that, and that comes through a continued relationship with Him and continued time in His Word. And uh, that brings us up to verse 4, which there is a, a new paragraph here. Your copy of Scripture might have that laid out, a paragraph break. Uh, the, the theme changes a little bit, and... Uh, the metaphors change here, and we're going to look this morning at verses 4 through 8. So let's have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on His Word. Lord, we thank You for the time together. Thank You for Your goodness to us. Thank You for uh, the grace that You've shown in each of our lives. And we thank You for Your Word and all that it provides for us. We uh, thank You that we can rely on the truth of Your Word through uh, the challenges and difficulties of life. And we pray that You'd encourage our hearts now as... Uh, we look at this passage together and open our eyes to the truth that you want us to see here. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, verses 4 to 8 here are doctrinal section of this chapter, uh, kind of wedged between two more practical sections. And whenever we come up to doctrine in Scripture, we want to remind ourselves that uh, doctrine is intended for God's people to be a motivation. Uh, it's not supposed to be dry and dusty uh, just for seminary classrooms or for people who are new to the faith and need to learn uh, the core doctrines of Scripture. Uh, but doctrine is the fuel that keeps us going, uh, that motivates us to live in the right way. Uh, truth about God is intended to motivate us to live for him, And even those first three verses we read remind us that God has a very high standard. Uh, he says to lay aside all of these wicked things in verse 1 and to love his word. Uh, and even those two things are a high standard for God's people that we can't do without relying on God and his truth uh, and the, the doctrine that he gives us in his word. And this portion here then in verses 4 to 8 is focused on the Messiah. 
who the Messiah is and how people respond to the Messiah. And you see in verse 4, when he says, to whom coming, uh, that's tied back to verse 3, the whom there is talking about the Lord, Christ, and that's the, he is the uh, emphasis, the main theme of this passage, to whom coming, and then a description of Christ as a living stone. Uh, Peter has in mind several Old Testament passages that he's actually going to quote later, and we'll look at those. Each one mentioned a stone. Uh, the people he's writing to would have been familiar with these passages, but they may not have always realized that the stone was the Messiah, and Peter applies it directly to Christ. And here he calls Christ a living stone. Uh, now, stones we're familiar with are typically inanimate. They just sit there, and there's no, there's no life. Uh, no one, I'm assuming, has a pet stone. Uh, there, there's, no, there's no life there. Except here Peter calls him a living stone. So why would Christ be a living stone? It's because Christ is alive, and in particular, Christ rose from the dead. And so Christ, there, there was the Christ's death and then his resurrection. And so he is a living stone because he is a living Savior. Uh, he transitions then, uh, still in verse 4, to how people perceive the Messiah. And he starts with a negative perception. Uh, he says, disallowed indeed of men. Uh, the Messiah has been rejected by men. The Jews did this when Christ came. They rejected the Messiah. They were looking for a political king, and that's not what he came to do. Uh, and they didn't appreciate how he overruled the Pharisees and their standards and uh, eventually, they put him on the cross and they rejected him. But not just first century Jews have rejected Christ. All through the centuries, people have rejected the Messiah. And he has been, as that word says, disallowed. He's been rejected by many men. But God's perception is at the end of verse 4. He's chosen of God and precious. God did not reject the Messiah. God chose him. And from eternity past, God had a plan for the entire uh, time of history, and Christ was the one that was chosen to fulfill God's plan. He was chosen by God. He's precious or valuable. That, that God views this living stone, the Messiah, as having unparalleled value or worth, more value than anything that we could focus on in this lifetime. Then as Peter transitions to verse 5, and really through the rest of this passage, he looks at the responses that people have to the Messiah. How do people respond to this living stone? Uh, and he begins with, here with the positive. Some people put their trust in him, and then down uh, into verse 7, partway through, he'll switch to the negative response to the Messiah. Uh, the first group responds positively, and you can see that actually uh, back in verse 4. Uh, verse 5 starts with the word you. You also as lively stones. But then back to verse 4, we, we passed over the first few words because they really tie into verse 5. To whom coming. Uh, that those who respond in the right way to the Messiah are coming to him. And that word is not just a filler. Uh, that word shows up in passages that we're familiar with like Hebrews 4.16, let us come 
boldly to the throne of grace. The idea of approaching to the presence of God. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near. That's the same word, draw near with a a true heart to the throne of God. Uh, Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God, but he that comes to God. This idea of you are approaching the very presence of God. Uh, Believers uh, come to God in salvation, but there's a present tense to this as well. Coming over and over again in prayer and in fellowship and uh, coming to access the strength that God provides. And as verse uh, 3 said, that believers have tasted, experienced that the Lord is good and then continue to come back again for more and more of God's goodness. So that, that's who the first group is, the ones who are coming to Christ, and they are going to be described in verses 5 through 7 in several ways. First, their identity, who they are, and uh, then, then their purpose, what God has called them to do, and then finally, their destiny, what God has prepared for them in the future, and we'll see each of those here. First, you see their identity at the beginning of verse 5. Uh, you also, and you can put your name right there. If you know Christ as Savior, you are part of this group that has responded positively to the Messiah. And he says, you also as a lively stone. Uh, That's the exact same word as in the verse before, in living. You are a living stone. In this case, though, he's not saying that we're the exact same type of living stone as the Messiah is. We have life because he gave it to us. We have spiritual life because we came to Christ and he provided the spiritual life that we need. And the stone here is not the uh, foundational stone the Messiah is, uh, but this is a stone that is pictured now as part of a building. So you know, don't think about a, a small gravel stone that you find out in the yard or, or even a, a misshapen stone. Uh, think more of a large stone that has been cut in particular to build something like a retaining wall or a building. And here, these stones are fashioned for a purpose to build a spiritual house. And that's what verse 5 says. Uh, You as living stones, your life comes from Christ, you are built into a spiritual house, not a material house. In the Old Testament, the dwelling place of God was material. It was the tabernacle. And then later on in Israel's history, it was at the temple. And both of those, the glory of the Lord came and indwelt. In the New Testament, where does God dwell? He's not in the church building when we all leave. He dwells in his people. And so each of God's people is part of this building in the metaphor here uh, that God dwells in, and in particular, uh, the Holy Spirit indwells God's people. And you can imagine that this is a building that is not completed. It is continually growing. And another stone is added, and another stone is added as people turn to Christ as Savior. Uh, This is a spiritual house or building that is uh, being built up as people turn to Christ. Here, uh, Peter goes on, and sometimes he mixes metaphors together. So we're not just the building, the spiritual house. Next, in verse 5, we are a holy priesthood. Uh, So we're not just the house, we are the priests. And think back to the Old Testament. What did the priests do? They came from the line of Levi. 
Uh, only certain ones of them were allowed to be priests. And God didn't look very favorably on people who tried to go outside of his bounds and take the, the duties of the priesthood. Think of someone like King Saul who attempted to do uh, the priestly duty or, uh, and, and uh, receive judgment from God. So how in the New Testament are you and I priests? And we, we have this term that we use from time to time, the priesthood of the believer. It would be because we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't need any type of human priest or a mediator, and uh, this would be one of several points where uh, the Catholic Church is inaccurate in, in assuming that we need it to go through a human priest to access God. And in, in the, uh, uh, during the Reformation, this was a central truth taught by the Reformers, that there was no human mediator that was needed, that we can go straight to God through Christ. Uh, we can come to Him, and in that sense, we are priests. But priests don't enter God's presence and just stand there. What did they do in the Old Testament? They entered God's presence and they served. There was always something to do. Uh, there were sacrifices to be offered. There was the upkeep of the tabernacle and uh, the showbread had to be out and the candle had to remain lit. There, there was service to do by the priests. And here in verse 5, the Lord tells us that we have uh, duties, responsibilities, as well as priests and it's described here as offering up spiritual sacrifices. Uh, spiritual here, not physical. There's no physical altar, no physical animal that is being offered. So what would a believer do that would be considered a spiritual sacrifice? And if you would, I, there's several passages, but let's go to Hebrews 13, just a few pages back probably for you, uh, because you see two of these in the same passage. Uh, where we're described as offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15. Hebrews 13, 15. By him, Christ, therefore, let us offer, you see here, the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. There's one example of a spiritual sacrifice we offer to God, offering the Lord praise. Just one verse down from there, uh, verse 16, but to do good and to communicate or to share, to be generous, uh, fellowship with others. Uh, forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. There's another one. It's, so it's not limited to one thing. Uh, you see here several things that fall in this category of offering a spiritual sacrifice to God. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul describes the monetary support that was sent uh, as a spiritual sacrifice. In Romans 12, uh, you, you can probably recall, Paul says, I, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. So th this is a fairly broad category that would encompass everything that you do that aligns with God's word. Uh, when you obey what God's word says to do, you are offering God a spiritual sacrifice. When, when you offer God praise, you are offering him a spiritual sacrifice. I would think this would apply even in everyday mundane activities. 
when you go to work because God wants you to provide for your family and you do your best and uh, you do what's ethical, you're offering a spiritual sacrifice to God. Uh, when you are working around the home and there are dishes to be done and laundry to be done and you're doing that because you want to honor the Lord and the Lord wants you to take care of your family, you're offering a spiritual sacrifice to God. Now, you can do all of those things for yourself. Uh, you could go to work because you want more things and more money, and that perhaps may, may not be offering God a spiritual sacrifice. Uh, but here, what God's people are doing back in 1 Peter 2 are offering up spiritual sacrifices. We, we could uh, perhaps say it's a broad care category of doing what God expects, doing what honors the Lord. And they're called a holy priesthood here. Uh, remember, Old Testament priests had to be clean in order to perform the duties of the priesthood. And you never find anything in Scripture where there's an exception that a priest could be unclean, but as long as he goes in the tabernacle or the temple and he does the right things and he offers the sacrifices, that God will overlook the uncleanness and accept the sacrifice. Now, the, the uncleanness uh, defiled the entire thing. And similarly in the New Testament, uh, that here when sin defiles us, which it does all the time, God wants us to run to him for cleansing so that we are a holy priesthood. And, and God doesn't look at our activities, our actions, our works, and say, well, that, yeah, that's, I'm glad you did that. That overrules the sin that you're allowing in your life. Uh, we're supposed to be a holy priesthood, as this verse describes. So everything here is uh, described as a spiritual sacrifice, and this raises a red flag for us. Does God accept sacrifices of good, good works, deeds, praise? I mean, as Protestants, we're, we're very firm on the fact that salvation is by faith alone. That, that works don't play into salvation at all. And just one example, because Scripture very clearly teaches, Romans 3.28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So how could God accept a spiritual sacrifice of things that we do, whether it's obeying God or giving God praise? We see that right at the end of verse 5. Look at the last phrase in 1 Peter 2.5. Acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That phrase is crucial in, in this verse, that we didn't pay for our sins, we never could, and we don't continue to by obeying God. Christ offered one sacrifice for sins forever, Hebrews 10 says. And God accepts the things that we do because of what Christ has done for us. And with uh, you take Christ out of the picture, it doesn't matter how many good things you do. It doesn't matter how much you stand and you praise the Lord. Uh, it's not acceptable to God without Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And so here, this is the duty of us as spiritual, uh, as part of the spiritual house, uh, the holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices. And there's an assumption here that all of God's people are involved. You don't see any special tier of people. Like the, the most faithful of God's people, those are the priests who offer up the spiritual sacrifices. And other people, maybe they don't really want to do that or to have time to do that. You don't see any of that division in this verse. 
This encompasses all of God's people. All of God's people are part of this house. All are part of this priesthood. And all are expected to be giving God the honor that he deserves. So there was the identity that we are, the purpose to offer spiritual sacrifices. Uh, Third here, the destiny of God's people. And this begins in verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Uh, this is a, a quotation here of Isaiah 28, 16. Uh, you're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Uh, it's very similar, but there is a difference of wording that is interesting. Isaiah 28, 16 uh, is the Old Testament quote. Isaiah says, uh, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Uh, so we'll walk through this quote here. Uh, it's in Isaiah 28 and 1 Peter 2. Uh, God is the one speaking, and Zion is a reference to Jerusalem. This is the center of God's work on earth. And the cornerstone then is Christ. He's the foundation of uh, of uh, describe the metaphor and scripture of the spiritual building. Uh, and he's described as both chosen and precious. That same word that showed up in verse 4 about Christ. He's chosen. God chose the perfect foundation for his church. He's precious. That was also back in verse 4, uh, very valuable. And when you have a cornerstone, uh, in that day, we use different building methods typically, but uh, the cornerstone was crucial to the foundation of the building. And these could be massive. Uh, the, one of the largest recorded ones was a single stone that was 69 feet long uh, and 12 feet by 3 feet. The, these took dozens of men to move into place as the foundation of a building. And we, Heather and I had the chance to see one of these uh, when we uh, were on a trip in Israel under the Temple Mount, and it just is such a large stone that you can't imagine how, in that time period, they got that to the right place. But the purpose of the cornerstone is it it lines up the rest of the building, and the angles have to be cut perfectly. If the angles are off by even a small degree, what happens to the entire building? It's all askew. If the cornerstone isn't level, then the building cannot be level. And so Christ here is described as the cornerstone, and he is the perfect cornerstone that the entire house is built upon. And the the quotation continues, If you stake your faith on him, uh, he that believes on him shall not be confounded. If you stake your faith on Christ as the cornerstone, you will not be confounded. Confounded, You will not be put to shame or disappointed. Uh, that's where the difference from the quote comes in. Isaiah uh, chapter 28 said, Whoever believes will not make haste. And this is a case where uh, in the Old Testament, the, the, the readers may have wondered a little of what it means to make haste. Does it mean if you believe in Christ that it, life is easy going? You don't have to hurry anywhere. It's, it's all nice and calm. 
uh, what exactly is the intention of not being in haste. What Peter does here is uh, he, he's not changing the text. He's quoting the, the uh, Greek translation. And the Greek translation doesn't say haste. It says you won't be ashamed or confounded. Uh, and by under inspiration, Peter is letting us know that's the intention of what Isaiah said. And so when Isaiah says you're not going to be in haste, the most likely interpretation is that you are hasting away from an enemy in shame. And that if you stake your faith on Christ, you won't do that. You're not going to be ashamed. Uh, you're not, you're not going to... Uh, no, no, no true believer will look back and say, I just wish I hadn't put my faith in Christ. It's one of the worst decisions I made. No true believer says that. Uh, no, no one who stakes their life on Christ says, I, I, I just wish I wouldn't have wasted my life by serving the Lord. Uh, no true believer is ashamed. Uh, you have all the blessings that come with a relationship with God in this life and everything that comes in eternity. Uh, he that believes on him will not be confounded or ashamed, put to shame, disappointed. The idea continues into verse 7, the first phrase, because he's still talking about, uh, in a positive sense, those who have the right view of the Messiah. Uh, Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. And uh, here, um, the word precious, a different word than precious back in verse 6 and verse 4, uh, that one meant valuable, uh, intrinsically holding value. Uh, this word carries more of the idea of honor and uh, someone or something being honored. Uh, if, you, if you're looking at the King James like I am, you can see that the two words he is are italicized, which means that the, uh, the translators added that to try to smooth it out. It's an interpretation of the passage. Uh, because the, the uh, original words just say, you who believe, precious. And so we have to come to Scripture and, and interpret what is precious or honored here. Um, this translation is saying that it's Christ who is precious or honored, uh, and that's a possibility, but it's also a possibility that, it's, that what the verse is saying is, to you who believe, you have honor because you are tied to Christ. And those are similar ideas. Uh, it's not taking any honor from Christ, but Christ is honored, but we are also sharing in that honor because of our connection to the Savior, to the living stone. And this is the opposite of the way that the world views God's people. D- does our society honor the Savior and the followers of the Savior? Not typically, Typically, uh, we live by faith in a way that pleases God. And then how does the world respond? Not very positively to us. Uh, But God ensures that those who believe are not ashamed, as verse 6 says, but they receive honor. And that would include uh, honor in this life, but honor in the life to come. And you can even think of people like Job, when God says, consider my servant Job and how he is enduring under the trials. And uh, that that is, um, Job is being honored and pointed out as uh, someone who, who God is working in his life. And earlier in this book, uh, in chapter 1, God says that angels are desiring to look into God's plan and 
you know, conveys this idea that God is at work in the lives of people, and even spiritual beings are intensely watching. They're really interested in what God is doing in the lives of people uh, as he ch changes them, brings them out of darkness to light, and then makes them more like Christ throughout their lives. Then partway through verse 7 in 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter switches here from the positive response, that was verse 5, all the way up to the first phrase of verse 7, and now the negative response to the Messiah that's going to continue into verse 8 here, when he says, but to you, uh, unto them, but unto them who are disobedient, those who reject Christ, uh, who do not believe, who do not obey the gospel, and, and we, we're going to see this word again, uh, disobedient in verse 8. And we see it in a couple other passages of Scripture as well, that uh, you can be disobedient to the gospel by not accepting it, by not turning to Christ. And so here, uh, those who are disobedient, those who do not believe, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Uh, this is another quotation, this time from Psalm 118. And verse 22, this one's almost word for word. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. Uh, so those uh, who, are, who think that they're, they're building this building, and uh, they look at Christ and they say, no, he's not part of our building. The, the Pharisees would fall right into that. They think that they are the spiritual leaders, and they are the ones who are advancing God's plan in the world and they look at Christ and say, no, he's not part of this. We're going to continue on our path without him. So they look at Christ, they disallow or reject him, decide that it's not worth using. And even to this day, so many people look at Christ and say, mm, I think there's a better way. I think I know enough, I have enough knowledge and expertise to make my own decision, and it doesn't include Christ because that's just not the path I want to go down. Uh, th this this uh, verse here from Psalm 118, the stone which the builders uh, rejected, the same as made the head of the corner. Uh, Jesus quoted this uh, to the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 21 in verse 42, and he applied them to himself. He, uh, he said to them, did you never read in the scripture the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And something I think is interesting, we, we can miss this sometimes. Christ said that to the religious leaders. Who would have been standing and listening to exactly what he said? All of the disciples, including Peter, who wrote this book. So he heard Christ say this and apply it to himself. Uh, he knows this is a prophecy about Christ. Uh, and after the resurrection in the book of Acts, uh, Peter, uh, standing before the religious leaders in Acts 4.11, Peter quotes the same passage about Christ. The stone the builders rejected is made the head of the corner. People will reject the Messiah. They have uh, throughout history. But this does not change God's plan. Uh, what God has done is taken this stone that was rejected and he has made him the head of the corner described here. And there's some difference of opinion. This, this could be the cornerstone, very similar idea to verse 6. 
uh, the foundation of the building that is indispensable to the whole structure. Uh, it could also be the capstone, the top of the building, the most important piece, the, the place of prominence. Uh, and there's, a, a, there's an old, uh, I don't know if you would say a tale, a, a story um, that there was a, a stone that looked like it didn't fit anywhere in the building, and so it was set aside and unusable. And then when the building was almost finished, this is a story the Jews told based on this verse. Uh, when the building was almost finished, Right at the top, that stone fit perfectly right where it needed to go at the top and was the, the stone of prominence. So either way, whether it's the foundation stone or the, the capstone, the stone of prominence, this is Christ is an indispensable part of God's plan. And so verse 8 describes what happens to people who reject the Messiah. <clears throat> a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to those who stumble at the word, who, those who think they can avoid Christ, uh, those who are disobedient to the gospel, disobedient to the word, uh, the stone that's intended to be the foundation, to, to be integral to the building, for them it's a stumbling block. And this is another quotation from Isaiah uh, chapter 8 and verse 14. Uh, the, the, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So here you imagine a large stone laying in the path, and, and the met metaphors are, are, don't always work out evenly from beginning to end, so uh, you could imagine that the building is in progress, and the foundation stone just hasn't been put in yet, so now it's sitting on the side, and people stumble over it, but you don't have to tie the two metaphors together. Here, here's a big stone in the way, and you stumble over it, and don't imagine you, you, you just knock into it and wobble a little bit and regain your balance. This is the type of stumbling that uh, leads to an injury, uh, that leads to just a complete and total downfall. And the idea here is a spiritual downfall. Uh, the word offense here in particular is uh, from the, the Greek word scandalos or scandalon. And you can hear the English word that comes from that, a scandal, a, a trap that takes somebody down. Uh, spiritual ruin is the end of those who reject the Messiah, who, as verse 8 says, are disobedient to the word. Uh, God commands everybody to repent and believe. And when you refuse that and you disobey what God has offered, uh, you disobey God's word, then this stone, which is supposed to be the foundation you can build your entire life on, it's supposed to be the place of prominence, then this stone becomes to those uh, their ruin, their downfall. You, you can't avoid Christ either way, is the point of these metaphors stacked together. Either Christ is going to be the foundation of your life, or you're going to stumble over Christ to your own destruction. There is no other option. Uh, those are the only two responses to the Messiah. Then at the end of verse 8 here, uh, we have this last phrase, which is uh, a little contentious and uh, causes us some discomfort. When he says, whereunto, also, they were appointed. So the whereunto is talking about the stumbling, the uh, uh, ultimate spiritual destruction. And this verse is saying they were placed, they were appointed, uh, destined for that destruction. Uh, that, that this is part of God's plan. Uh, 
And the reason that creates some discomfort is because we know from other passages of Scripture uh, that God uh, does not choose, he's not willing that any should perish. Second uh, Peter 3.9 says that. God is not choosing people for eternal punishment. And uh, we, we would not hold to that view. But it seems to be what Peter is saying here, that they're appointed to destruction. Uh, probably the best way to integrate this with other places of Scripture that, that place the responsibility on people and their free will uh, is to view this as a category, that this is a category of those who reject Christ, uh, that God's not choosing specific people to ordain them to uh, spiritual ruin, but that for anyone who makes this choice, it has been appointed or ordained, that that will be their end. Uh, anybody who rejects the Messiah will be appointed to spiritual destruction. Uh, anybody who places themselves in that category of rejecting Christ is going to face uh, eternity apart from God. Uh, and it's, this is not fatalistic. This is not saying, well, you're on this path, you're destined for destruction, and uh, there's nothing you can do about it, because the gospel is clear that all of us were on this path, weren't we? There is a way off of this path. It's by putting your trust in Christ as Savior. And for those who are still on this path of rejecting the Messiah, and if they stay on that path, they are appointed to spiritual destruction. While they still live and breathe on the earth, there's still an opportunity. An opportunity to turn to Christ, to change their view of the Messiah, to line up with what God's view says, to turn from rejection to belief. And if there's still the opportunity to change... That means there's still the opportunity for us to share God's truth with them. We don't view evangelism as though we look at someone and we decide, no, they're appointed to destruction. I'm not going to share the gospel with them. No, we view everyone as on the wrong path, just like we were before salvation. And we share the gospel freely with everyone and, and we pray for them. And, and anyone who is still breathing on this earth has time to change. And so here, maybe there's loved ones that we know, and we pray for them, and we've shared the gospel, and we continue to share the gospel, and we don't give up on them, because there's still an opportunity to turn to Christ. There's still an opportunity for us to share the truth of God's love and to encourage people to get off the path that leads to spiritual ruin and to put their faith and trust in the Messiah. Uh, the, the, this passage, uh, very doctrinal here, is um, about the Messiah, has these two views, and it's, very, uh, uh, it's a, a dichotomy. There's only two options. Uh, there's no third way. And in a period of times in history, uh, people have found themselves in these circumstances, like, say, the, the American Revolution, as it picked up steam. Uh, there, there were those who attempted to remain neutral, but it was really hard to do because there, there were two sides and eventually you had to go with one side or the other. It's the same with Christ. There's no middle way. There's no escaping Christ. Uh, you either, as Peter says, you either turn to Christ and you become part of the spiritual house and the holy priesthood and you offer spiritual sacrifices to God 
uh, and, you, and you, you're not ashamed, you don't look back and regret what you've done, or you reject Christ, and uh, you are on the path of spiritual destruction. Th those are the only two possible responses. And we have to keep that in mind as we share the gospel with people because uh, from time to time we, we come across somebody who really looks successful. Uh, maybe they're doing well in, in life and uh, doing well as, um, as a, a, a family or a parent. I think of someone in particular I knew years ago uh, was a really good dad involved with his kids, but he didn't know the gospel. It, 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 and very clearly, he was in the group of people right then that were rejecting the Messiah. It didn't matter if uh, he was doing the right things. He didn't know Christ. And then eventually, praise the Lord, he trusted Christ as a Savior. Now he has the right view of the Messiah. Uh, those are the only two options. Everybody falls into one category or the other, uh, as Peter lists here. And then uh, in the morning message, we're going to look at the next few verses, which describe uh, more of our special status as God's people. So we'll go ahead and uh, finish with that this morning, a little bit, a couple minutes early, and uh, go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, we thank you for your love. Thank you for the truth here that uh, you sent the Messiah. You had a plan from the beginning of time. Pray that we would uh, be encouraged by this doctrine to live in a way that honors you and to live as a, a holy priesthood, as you say, and, and to offer spiritual sacrifices to you. And we pray you give us a burden for those who are still on the path to eternal destruction, that uh, we would willingly share the gospel and pray for people. And we pray in particular for uh, those specifically we are burdened for uh, who uh, are rejecting you now but we want to see them turn to you. We pray you would soften hearts just as you did in our lives. And we thank you for the truth of your word. We pray your blessing on the upcoming service, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.